I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 14 this morning. We are starting a brand new series today called My Church Is. My Church Is Blank. And I want to talk about that a little bit here in just a few moments. But I want to ask you a question as you're turning to Luke chapter 14. I want to ask you the question that goes like this. How often do you think about your future? And I hope at this point in life, you're still thinking about the days that are to come more than days that have gone by. I know sometimes it's easy to live life through the rear view mirror and think, oh, my my best days are behind me. Or man, look how good God was in my past or look how faithful he was. But I hope that you still think about your future. I hope that you still have hope for what God is going to do in the days and the years to come. So what do you think about when you think about your future? And I want to go one step further and ask you what you think about when you think of the future of the church. And you can think about the future of the the big C church, if you will, the church around the world. But I want you to also think about the future of Crossroads Church. What do you think about? You know, we stand here today on the rich history of men and women that went before us, that stood on God's word, who sacrificed to make this church Whether it be all the years of Ontario Christian Fellowship or whether it be all the years of Crossroads Church to make this church a beacon in this area and around the world for the gospel. You know, there are folks that envisioned a brighter future. There are folks that envisioned reaching multitudes with the gospel of Jesus Christ. There are people that prayed that God might do a work in this community. They sacrificed, they gave generously. By the sweat of their brows, they helped to sacrifice and build this place. And they love something beyond themselves. The fact of the matter is, we would not be here without their generosity, without their obedience to the gospel so many years ago. And some of you folks are, are those people. Some of you, I've asked, I've polled the, the audience several weeks ago and asked how many of you have been here for 20 years or 30 years or 40 years. And some of you stood up and said, I was here at the very beginning. And I applaud people like that, people that, um, man, covenanted with this body of believers and said, I want to live for something greater than myself. You adapted to the changing tides and the culture. You persevered through lean times as a church as well as seasons of abundance. And you've covenanted with this body and you love the brothers and sisters that are around you that you do life with, that you fellowship with, that you grow with, that you attend church with, that you have small groups with. You've covenanted with these people and you love this place because you're living for a future glory. You're living your life to be an impact upon future generations. You know, I read a quote, or I heard a quote recently, just this past week that said this, and I want you to to pay close attention to this because I love this quote. It says this, Live to touch a day that you will never see. Live to touch a day that you will never see. What a powerful motto to live by. To live to touch a day that we will never come in contact with. And when you live to touch a day that you will never see, it tells me that you are living for the advancement of the gospel. You are living for future generations. You are living for the hope that Jesus might do a work in people that you will never be able to do, but he can do it through you and your ministry and your life and your testimony and your witness. And he can carry that legacy on way beyond you way beyond your work. And I know for me, I hope that at the end of my days, 
Somebody's life is different in the future because of my testimony, because of my ministry, because of my lifestyle, because of the choices that I make in this day. And I hope that the the gospel seeds that I'm planting right now on this earth are going to bring forth fruit and abundance for future generations. And I hope that they have a lasting impact on somebody's life. And I will even go so far as to say this. I hope that the gospel seeds that I am planting now have an impact beyond my children. I hope it goes beyond my children's children. I hope that in maybe a hundred years, somebody might say, Chris Standridge. I'd never met the man, but because of that one man and his life and because of his witness and because of his deeds, because he loved the gospel, my life has been impacted because of it. You know, God has a way of multiplying the fruit from the seeds of our obedience, doesn't he? You know, he has a way of turning our simple acts of obedience into into beautiful things of abundance. He has a way of taking, you know, five loaves and two fish and feeding multitudes with it. That's the beauty of our God and how he uses us. And this tells me, as we think about the fact that God takes our simple seeds of obedience and multiplies them, it tells me how serious he is in using us in his plan for redemption of the lost. I think it's sometimes easy as we think about Crossroads Church. I think it's sometimes easy as we think about the history of Ontario Christian and the history of Crossroads to think, well, God gave the church And he developed and established the church not only here in this generation, but 2,000 years ago. And he needed to give them something to do, so he gave them a mission. Well, the reality is, folks, is that God didn't create a mission for the church. He created a church for his mission. And his mission is to reach lost people. His mission is to make disciples of all nations. And I think it's sometimes easy to get those things backwards, but I I also think it's important for us to remember, and I've said this before, and you'll hear me say this in in the months of the years coming ahead, certainly the weeks coming ahead, is that the church is God's plan A for redemption. We are his plan A. There is no plan B. And so the church, think about this. You and the message that you carry, the light that you shine forth, your saltiness in this earth that we're going to talk about here in just a few minutes, you are the hope of the world. God has placed this mission within each and every one of us, and he wants to see it carried out. And so with all of that in mind, as we think about the church, when you think about my church is, how would you fill in that blank at the end of that statement? My church is blank. For some of you, you might say, my church is family. For some of you, you might say, my church is the hope of the world. You might think my church is on mission. You might say, my church, unfortunately, is distracted. Maybe you say, my church is community. Maybe you'd say, my church is loving. Who are we going to be as a church, as we carry out God's great commission, moving forward, who are we going to be? And what we're going to see today in Luke chapter 14 is we're going to see the heart of God because Jesus is going to share a story that gives us a glimpse into what God's passion is and what his heart beats for. And when we know what God's heart beats for, our heart should automatically align with his and beat for the same things that his beats for. We get a glimpse of how desperately God wants to reach people and how desperately he wants to use us in his mission to rescue those who are lost. And he gives us a blueprint for the church. 
So in Luke chapter 15, that's where we're going to start. We're going to pick up in the middle of the story because what we're going to hear is a story from Dr. Luke who got a firsthand account witness of some of the things of Jesus and the teachings of Jesus. And he's going to share with us a story. And where we're going to pick up in the middle of this story is Jesus is now a dinner guest at the house of a Pharisee. Those that we know were his arch you know, his arch nemesis, his rival, those people that wanted to discredit him. And there's really only one reason that Jesus was probably invited to the house of a Pharisee. It's because they wanted to discredit his ministry. They wanted to vet him. They wanted to bait him. And they wanted to trap him with their difficult, deep spiritual questions. And so they begin peppering Jesus with all of these different questions, trying to trap him and disprove him. So understand this, that in this day and age... The Pharisees, we look at them and say, oh man, they're so pharisaical. They must have been awful people. And certainly we know through history that they had ulterior motives, that they had their own agendas, that they wanted to protect their lifestyle. They wanted to protect their own advancement and their own way of doing religion. But understand that it wasn't always this way. The Pharisees in some ways had a, actually a positive impact on their culture and on the Jewish religion because If you understand anything, you know that people for years and years, hundreds of years, were looking for the Messiah to come. And so every once in a while, maybe every few years, these false prophets, these false messiahs would, would pop up and they would say, I am the coming one. I am the one that or that God said was coming to deliver Israel. And the Pharisees' job, their task was to make sure that if someone claimed to be a messiah, that they were either a true messiah or they weren't. And so it started out, Maybe, maybe with pure intentions. They wanted to know, is Jesus for real? This guy who claims to be God, this guy who claims to be Messiah, is he the real deal? But what we also ultimately know at the end is that they just wanted him to go away. They wanted nothing to do with him. They wanted to protect their own way of life. And so they start peppering Jesus with questions But what we know about Jesus is that he was a master at handling difficult situations. And so it turns into story time with the Savior. Jesus could give a master class on telling stories to drive home a point, couldn't he? I mean, he told all of these parables, these these stories that would communicate deep truth, but he would tell them in a way that was extremely understandable. And the stories that Jesus goes on to share in Luke chapter 14 and chapter 15 give us the stories of God's heart about people that are lost. And in each story, each parable, we're not going to go through all of them, but something valuable has been lost. Whether it was a a lost opportunity, maybe it was a lost priority, maybe it was a lost coin or a lost son or a lost sheep. There's five different stories about something that was lost. And what I want to do this morning is I want to look at Luke chapter 14 and I want to look at the very first story that Jesus shares with his Pharisee, with the Pharisees and with those who were dinner guests with him. And we're going to get a picture and a glimpse into God's heart and how he feels about those who are lost. So these are the things that we need to know as a church going forward, trusted with the mission of God. So Jesus tells the story of a great banquet. And many of you have read this as we read it just a few minutes ago. You're familiar with this story, but this is a banquet. And Jesus is telling the story. And the host of this, uh, in this story, is a picture of God. 
And so the Jews understand that God was inviting them and the Jews would just have assumed, they would have presumed their relationship and their favor with God. And they just assumed that as a good and godly Jew, that they would have been invited to this great banquet that this host wanted to have. And so I want to read verses 15 through 17, starting off. And it says this, when one of those who reclined at the table with him heard these things, he said to him, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. This is a Jew saying, certainly we will eat bread in the kingdom of God. We are blessed because we are the chosen. We are the privileged. We are the ones in covenant. But Jesus said to him, or I should say the master said to him, a man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, come for everything is now ready. There's three main truths as we get into this text this morning and we read a little bit beyond um, the story of the great banquet. I want to give you three main truths that are revealed in this text about the life of following Jesus and what we should be about as a church moving forward. And the first truth is this. There's a call to come. There is a call to come. And as we, look at the, as we look at this parable in particular, this parable is really about a great banquet, but what it should, should be called ultimately is the parable of the lame excuses. Have you ever been invited to one of those gatherings in life that you just didn't want to go to? I mean, we all get those invites, right? Like maybe it's a birthday party. Maybe it's a fundraiser and you know somebody's going to ask you to open up your wallet. Maybe it's a baby shower or a marriage shower. Maybe it's a wedding. It could be a dinner party. It might even be a serve opportunity in your church. You ever had one of those invites into something where you're like, oh my goodness, how do I get out of this? Better yet, do you know that person in your life that is just really good at sucking you in, at cornering you and and, and baiting you into an invite? You know, my last church, My pastor's wife was a master at recruiting people. In fact, I would say it was an art form for her. She would just randomly come up to you and just ask you. She wouldn't tell you what she was up to. She wasn't telling you what was on her mind. She'd just come up to you and say, hey, what are you doing on Saturday morning? And she would corner you. You laugh because you know, right? Like you've been there. You're like, oh man. I I can think of so many times over the years where I would be like, Man, if I tell her I have plans, then I might miss out on an opportunity. I might miss out on something fun. But if I tell her I have nothing going on, she's going to probably rope me into something I don't want to do. And she would just leave that ask out there. And she'd be like, what are you doing on Saturday? And she'd leave you there to kind of like deal with your inner turmoil. Like, how do I handle this? What do I do with this question? Because how I answer this might determine what happens for me. She'd let you deal with that turmoil. And I have to be honest, you ever met those people? You ever had those people in your life? I have to be honest, more times than not, I would give an excuse. Because I knew if Trisha was coming and she asked that question, she probably wanted me to do something. It was a brilliant tactic for recruiting people. But we would give lame excuses all the time. And I'm not necessarily proud of that fact. But Billy Sunday once said this, the great evangelist, so many years ago, he said an excuse is simply the skin of a reason stuffed with a lie. An excuse is simply the skin of a reason stuffed with a lie. And this parable that we are reading about right now gives us the the, the three different types of people and the lame excuses that they give for why they can't come to this great banquet. 
And this host, he wants to throw a lavish party. He wants to invite the, the, the rich and the wealthy and all of his friends and all of his known peers. And he invites everyone that he knows, but all of them have some sort of lame excuse. Let's look at verse 18 down to verse 20. It says, but they all alike, once they were invited, began to make excuses. The first said to him, I bought a field and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I have married a wife and therefore I cannot come. These three men all give an excuse and they're all in some way lame. Like one man buys a, he buys a piece of property. He buys a business proposition and he never even looked at it. Like who does that? Who buys a business and doesn't look at the books? Doesn't look at the P&Ls, the profits and losses? Doesn't get a peek behind that curtain? Nobody does that. Who buys a new car? Maybe you spend $20,000 on a new used car and it has 100,000 miles on it. Who doesn't test drive it first? But that's what one of these men did. And then there was another that blamed his wife. I just got married. I can't come. Sorry. Men, have you ever thrown your wife under the bus like that? Doesn't usually go well, does it? So these men are all using these lame excuses. Let's look on to verse 21 through 23. And it says, So the servant came and he reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house became angry. And he said to his servant, Go out quickly to the streets and the lanes of the city and bring in the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame. And the servant said, Sir, What you commanded has already been done, and there still is room. And the master said to the servant, go out into the highways and the hedges and compel people to come that my house may be filled. The host of this dinner party, the host of this great banquet, he just wanted his house to be filled. And he extends an invite to the rich, the wealthy, the influential, the the, the leaders, the politicians, whoever it might be. And when they don't come, he says, you know what? I'm not going to leave it at that. You go out and you find the lame. You go find the sick. You go find the crippled. You go find those who have been outcast and compel them to come in. The fact of the matter is, is that we are, many of us are called, but few respond in the world to the call of Jesus because we are so distracted. Jesus is saying to the nations, come to me. You who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Behold, I stand at the door of your heart and I knock. If you hear my voice and open it, I will come into you. But we as a nation, we as a, as a population, we as a culture, we're too busy for that. We're too distracted for that. Satan loves to keep us distracted so that we blow off that invitation to come and see. You know, there's a there's an, old ver- there's an old hymn that I love, and I was thinking about this as I was preparing my message for this weekend. That God is the great initiator. He has already sent his son Jesus to die on the cross for our sins. He, so he's already initiated the process of redemption. And he is also the great inviter. He invites us to come to him, to turn to him, to make room in our heart for him. Because there is room at the cross for you. And I thought of these words of the old hymn. The cross upon which Jesus died is a shelter in which we can hide, and its grace so free is sufficient for me. And deep is its fountain as wide as the sea. There's room at the cross for you. There's room at the cross for you. Though millions have come, there's still room for one. Yes, there's room 
at the cross for you. There is room for us. There is always room for one more. And the invitation from Jesus goes far and wide. And he wants his house to be filled. And he said in Revelation chapter 22, whosoever will may come. And he says to us, come to me and I will give you rest. I will offer you the peace with God that you cannot find on your own. There is room. There is a place at the great banquet for those of us who want to accept that invite. There's a call to come. The second truth that's revealed in this text is that there is a cost to count. There's a cost to count. You know, Jesus took on the corporate religion. He invited the sinners and the tax collectors and the sick to come to him. And after he left the house of the Pharisees, after he tells the story of the great banquet and he shows the heart of God for reaching lost people, he challenges the elite He gains great crowds. He gains a great following. Because finally, there is a rabbi for the ordinary man, the common man, and those who were rejected, those who were outcasts, those who were not necessarily seen as good. And the crowds were drawn to this, but Jesus wasn't interested in the crowds, was he? He was interested in the committed. Luke chapter 14, as we read on in verse 25, we now read past, a little bit past the great banquet. And we read in verse 25, now great crowds accompanied him. And he turned and said to them, if anyone comes after me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost whether he has enough to complete it. Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Man, this is, there's a great invitation to come and to follow Jesus. And now we see that there is a great cost and there is a cross to carry when you follow Jesus because Jesus doesn't make it easy for the crowds, does he? He never waters down his truth. He never lowers the expectation. He only raises them. This is his... This is Jesus explaining what it takes and what it looks like to follow after him. And this is what we see him doing. He's thinning out the crowds. He's getting, ready, he's getting rid of those who are simply fascinated with him. And he's looking for those who will be faithful to him. So what is the cost for us? Well, Jesus said it in that passage. He said, basically, you have to love me so much that it looks as if in comparison The people that you love, even your own self, it looks in comparison as if you hate them. That is the the cost that we have to count. My question to you is, has your commitment to Christ ever cost you anything? Has it ever really challenged you? Or has it been a casual commitment? Has it been a fascination? And can you imagine if we treated God the way, or we treated our spouses the way that we treat God? Imagine on your wedding day, if you were standing at the altar, getting ready to to say I do to the one that you love, whether it was your future husband or your future wife, and said, honey, I love you, and 90% of the time, I am going to be completely committed to you. But 100%, 
is just too much to ask. I will give you 90% of the time. Nine nights out of 10, I will be sleeping in bed with you. But 100%, 10 times out of 10, it's too much to ask. It wouldn't go very well for us, would it? If we devoted 90% of our devotion and faithfulness to our spouse, that wouldn't settle well with the one you claim to love. But don't we do that with God? Don't we say, God, I love you so much, and I'm going to give you 90% of my life, but God, 100%, that's, that's asking too much. You asked me to sacrifice too much, so I'm going to give you 90%. I'll give you everything that I have within that 90%, but I'm going to hold back 10% for me. You know, God, God does not want, he does not want to settle for our portions. He wants our entirety, doesn't he? He wants every part of us. Henry Drummond once said, entrance into the kingdom is free, but the annual subscription will cost you everything. And I'm convinced that our church pews are filled with people that don't understand the severity of what Jesus was saying, of what it looks like and the seriousness of the call of discipleship. They lack devotion. You know, David Platt, I read his book, Radical. Maybe you've heard of Pastor David Platt. Maybe you you read his book, Um, called Radical, but also his book called Follow Me. And in his book called Follow Me, this is what he said, and I want to read this to you real briefly. He shares the story of a member in his church who served many years ago alongside Christians in one of the most severely persecuted areas of the world. Choosing to follow Christ in an extremely Muslim country was costly. And he told David Platt that on, on the day he came to Christ, he was encouraged to make a list of all of the unbelievers that he knew, which was basically everyone since he lived in a Muslim country. Then they told him to circle the names of 10 people on that list that were least likely to kill him for converting to Christianity. And then they encouraged him to share his faith with them as quickly as possible. That was how the gospel spread in their nation. Someone that came to Christ in, a, in, in an extremely Muslim or, or, or dominantly Muslim country, this is how they pushed people into discipleship. This is how they lived out their faith. They said, if you're going to go all in with Jesus, then you're going to have to take risks. You're going to have to count the cost before you make this decision to follow me. Here in America, we have it so easy, don't we? And many people that profess Christ, that make decisions for Christ, they never really count that cost before they begin a life of following Jesus. And the reality is, and the sad reality is, for many people, they fade away, they fall away because they didn't stop and count the cost before they took up that cross. For us, we need to count the cost because there is a cost to count when it comes to following and being a disciple of Jesus. The third truth is this. There's a commission to complete. There's a commission to complete. I want to look forward into verse 34 of Luke chapter 14. Jesus has now basically told his disciples, if you want to follow me, you're going to have to count that cost, even though there is a great invitation to come. But I'm going to go a step further and I'm going to say this, salt is good. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has ears, let him hear. You know, unlike today, salt in biblical times was extremely valuable. It was a valuable um, commodity. In fact, it was so valuable that oftentimes soldiers were paid with salt. 
It was, it was a form of currency in some ways. So when you've heard the term, oh, he's not worth his salt, she's not worth her salt, that's where this comes from. Because it's referring to salary, it's referring to a currency, which is what salt was in some ways in biblical times. But we know over the centuries, over the, the millennia, that salt has always been a preserving agent for food. It's been a, puri- a purifying agent for disease and decay. Salt is a flavor-giving agent for food as well. And it's a thirst-creating agent. When you eat it, when you drink it, it simply makes you more and more thirsty. And if salt loses its saltiness, it's of no worth. It's of no value. It is only good to throw it out on the streets and to trample on it and walk on it. And that's what they would do in biblical times if it lost its flavor, if, it's, if it lost its saltiness. That's what they would do. So Jesus is telling us right here in this moment, we are the salt of the earth. We are the preservers of truth. We are the preservers of the gospel. We are the ones in our generation that is supposed to create a taste and a flavor and a, and a craving and a thirst for Jesus and what he did for us. And this is our commission as a church. I heard a quote recently on Facebook, actually, that said, you are the salt of the earth, but the church needs to get out of the salt shaker. You know what? We need to be dispensed. A lot of us, we're sitting in that salt shaker and we're almost of no value. We need to get out of our salt shaker and our saltiness is what creates a thirst for the gospel of Jesus Christ in a parched world. And folks, if we lose our purpose, if we lose our saltiness, then we have lost focus of what Jesus has called us to. And I want to remind us that there is a commission for us to complete and this is where we're going as a future. And as a church, we are reestablishing our vision. The fact of the matter is, is our mission never changes. Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Make disciples and baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Our mission will always be the same. But as our times change, our vision in some ways has to evolve with that. How we carry that out has to evolve with that. And I want to let you know that that is the reason behind this sermon. That is the reason behind this series that is coming, that we have a new mission or a new vision statement. And it says this, we are going to be leading people to gospel transformation in our communities and around the world. And how we carry that out, we want to know Christ, we want to grow together, and we want to go boldly into all the world. This is what we want to be about moving forward. So when we talk about my church is, we want to be a church that is on mission. We have a great commission to complete. We have no excuses. We have no, um, we have no release valve. We have no pardons. We have nothing that lets us out of this great commission. Each and every one of us are called to it as a church, as we go into the future. And we're going to break down over the next three weeks. We're going to talk about those three core values to know Christ, to grow together and to go boldly. This is what we want to be about. There's a call to come. There's a a cost to count and there's a commission to complete. Let's go to the Lord in prayer.